welcome to Jay's Talk Plus on this beautiful Wednesday morning. I'm Ben Schulman. She's Julia Kreutz. We're filling in for Blake Murphy. All all-star break. Jeff Azapari, Lance Kennedy, Jennifer Rolnick, as usual, behind the scenes. It's the day after the all-star game. The National League has broken the streak, and I believe one for like the fourth time since 1996. There was a tie in there as well, I believe. But it was a, a big day for the National League. The All-Star Game, of course, a big day of the year. First of all, how are you doing, Julia? I'm doing all right, Ben, as we were discussing off the air. Yeah. A few <laughs> late nights for us as we, uh, as we uh, get into the groove of the All-Star Game in Seattle. But uh, happy to be here and uh, happy to discuss what went down last night. There was a lot and at the same time, not a lot. To talk about yeah well i have to say so you you do work for mlb.com primarily and you were up very late last <laughs> night doing lots of stuff i have far less excuses aside from my softball team putting on the performance of the season yesterday oh which my goodness it was a big day it was a big day in the entire baseball really? world yeah belly itchers had a big game but I'll star nod for you or maybe you know i had a couple knocks i wasn't the best player on the team yesterday i'd say one of you know our, our center fielder had a lot of rbis yesterday but i drove in a couple took Amazing. a walk i'm an on-base guy so of course you are it was a uh it was a big day for us overall but huge day love it huge day in seattle the national league victorious three two over the american league we're going to run through it all, and we have a lot coming up on the show as well. Keegan Matheson is going to join us in the second hour of the show. Eduardo Perez, we talked to a little bit yesterday. We'll run that coming up before 11 o'clock. And Bob Nightingale from USA Today also expected to join us today. But let's let's head to this All-Star game, and you can text in your thoughts about the game at 590-590. We want to hear from you. There was some good. There was some bad. There was some ugly. Yeah, that's where for sure. where do you want to start in this game? You want to, you want to start with the positives? I think so. I think that's a that's a good way to start our day here. Ten o two a.m. As I look at the at the clock, it's, <laughs> it seems like a good idea to uh, to start with the positive. And there was no shortage of positives, right? Right, Ben. Uh, this um, this All Star break has been extremely entertaining. It's it's really you know showcased not only the plurality of the game, but also just the fun that these players are having uh, being there and, and enjoying this moment. The city of Seattle, everyone that we have talked to that is there has highlighted just how much this city got into it and really embraced the all-star break and, and, and brought it into the city uh, as well as just the, the ballpark area, right? So, so that is really nice, and I, I feel like it's a great place to start. And when you have that sort of environment, then... You're going to have everyone around it enjoy it a little bit more. And I think we saw that. And we certainly saw that at the ballpark from the fans. No other place to start other than Shohei Otani comes up to bat. And the fans immediately try to, to, to woo him, try to get him to come to Seattle by chanting, come to Seattle. Right? That was a, a, a pretty cool moment. I'm not sure if Angels fans agree. But uh, <laughs> extremely, uh, extremely entertaining to watch right off the bat at the All-Star Game. Incredible coordination from the fans in Seattle. Like, it's not, you know, Julio <laughs> comes up, and that was a great, you know, they're all going, Julio. Yeah. That's obvious. Yes. But if for everyone at once to be able uh, to get together, chant for Shohei, I don't think I've ever seen that. I at least haven't in a while where a stadium was that in concert, yelling to a player who plays Again, for a division rival, yeah. <laughs> and obviously, you know, they want him to switch part of 
because he plays for a division rival. Yeah. But it uh, it really does showcase, I think, just how incredible Shohei is. And he was quoted after the game really saying that he had never seen something like that before, yeah. that it was pretty surreal. I mean, he has uh, time and time again achieved the impossible, and yeah. I think that that is just <laughs> another um, another instance of that. I will uh, send it right back to you. Give me one uh, big good or positive from the All-Star break or, well, or the All-Star game. This won't be mine, but I will also give a little bit of credit to the fans in, in their coordination. Brent Rooker hits a ground rule double, and they chance sell the team, which I think uh, I, I have to give them some credit there. I think is pretty... Uh, pretty big from the fans there was a lot of good in this game overall but one one thing I think that you know really kind of capped off a game that otherwise maybe didn't have a ton of fun offensive moments right. was getting to see Julio Rodriguez in that bottom of the ninth inning yeah. and it, it was a little anticlimactic he ends up working a walk but you have Craig Kimbrell on the mound, who is arguably the best closer of the generation. You mm -hmm. saw him and Kenley Jansen, who that's the argument, really, mm -hmm. between those two, both top 10 in saves all time. And Kimbrell pitches to Julio Rodriguez with a chance to hit a walk-off homer. It doesn't end up that way. But I think, you know, when you put Julio in the All-Star game, maybe despite the fact he's not having his greatest season, that's part of the reason why. And I, I don't think there was a fan in that stadium that – didn't want to see Julio come up. Like, they were talking about it. They booed Kyle Tucker. And then immediately, so he took ball one. And they were like, all right, but we need Tucker to get on base yeah. right now. All the Seattle fans. So, it was a lot of fun to see Julio, even if it didn't turn into a walk-off, get that spot on the big stage and kind of what everyone was looking for. Let me ask you this. Obviously, it, Kimbrell sort of pitched around him there. Not, yeah. a, not a ton of stuff to uh, to hit and you know sort of shows maturity there that he um that he waited it out and, and worked up the walk not what the fans wanted to see no um we have also seen the internet sometimes go ablaze with uh, padres fans begging juan soto to swing the bat and it seems like he just is very very content with working up walks and that that can sometimes get frustrating very different scenarios of course when you're talking about the regular season and the all-star game but uh do you wish that Julio had maybe tried to swing at anything that was remotely close or were you sort of okay with him working up the walk there? So in the regular season with the Soto stuff, or it used to, for a long time, it was like a Joey Votto argument. Should he be, you know, swinging more and walking less? I, I think the walking's right. In the All-Star game, I want the guy to swing, if possible. And And there was one kind of borderline fastball on the outer edge. He fouled off, so he did go after it. But I, I get it in one sense. Even though the game doesn't matter, it did really feel like just for fun, the guys did really want to win. I mean, we saw that in the commitment on defense, I think, that players were definitely in this game to try and play their best and try, especially on the National League side. You want to snap that streak on the American League side. There's a tradition of being so dominant over the last 20, 25 years. But it would have been fun to see him, even if he had to expand, just take some huge hacks, go after something, and, and see if he could end it in style. Because he walks, and then Jose Ramirez ends up striking out, and none of it really matters anyway. And we didn't get that huge moment fulfilled after all. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a little curious, too, that Ramirez is the one to uh, to strike out, not necessarily a guy that uh, that will strike out a whole lot. I was a little surprised, Ben, that Kimbrell stayed in that uh, in that game. I will also admit that I didn't check the NL bullpen to see who else was available, if anyone was available, but... Um, there was a mound visit in between the Julio at bat and the the Ramirez at bat, 
And I thought, okay, this is it, right? Um, but it's not what happened. Kimbrel stayed in the game and actually got um, the save there in a pretty dramatic fashion, right? So when we're yeah. talking about um, big moments, sort of iconic moments, giving Craig Kimbrell the the chance to sort of figure it out after um, allowing two walks, that's a pretty big deal for a guy that is uh, probably, like you said, arguably one of the best closers of, of the generation. Yeah, and it is interesting, you know, as we continue kind of on the good, it's his own manager making that decision. The first Canadian-born manager to ever manage in the All-Star game. Rob Thompson was at the helm, being the manager of the Phillies, who made the World Series last year. And I was kind of in the same camp as you. They made the mound visit, and I thought, okay, after this batter, if the game doesn't end, they're going to pull him. And then Julio still worked the walk. I believe the mound visit was after the Tucker walk. I could be wrong. And he ended up getting Ramirez and mm -hmm. getting it done anyway. And it was interesting. I heard on Sirius uh, XM this morning, Craig Kimbrell, th that was a big moment to him, it sounded like. He said, like, you know, being able to add that to the list of things that I've done in my career is, you know, a big deal for me and, and something that you want kind of on a bucket list when you're, you know, racking up certain accolades. And obviously, you know, with 408 career saves and, uh, yeah. and a World Series title under his belt, he has plenty of accolades for sure. But... Uh, it was, a, you know, I think a big trusting moment there between Thompson and Kimbrell, and it ended up paying off. Yeah, it's, uh, we've been talking a little bit about sort of that, uh, that trust relationship between manager and players, and uh, I, I wonder what that does, right, for, for Thompson to come out and Kimbrell say he probably most likely said, no, I'm good, I, I want to do this, and uh, the, his manager says, okay, you, you got it. And it, What does that do to sort of build confidence and build trust obviously Kimbrell has had uh, his fair share of managers over his career minors and majors alike and this is something that uh, must mean a little bit more that was a, a huge incredible moment for sure and we cannot you know be in the in the good realm here without talking about another moment which was the Elias Diaz homer absolutely right? that was incredible incredible stuff yeah and i think for you know a colorado rockies franchise that yeah. frankly has not had a, a ton to cheer about in their history this is the first all-star mvp that they have diaz the lone all-star that they had and he hit it off felix bautista like yeah. he didn't hit it off you know not to insult anyone there but someone who's just there because they needed someone from their team everyone oh, sure. there is still a great player no doubt about it but he hit it off arguably the toughest closer in baseball, and you could see how much it meant to him, not just when he hit it, but in that ninth inning as they kept cutting back to the National League dugout, and he and Orlando Arcia are just living and dying with every pitch that Kimbrell throws. They thought, I think, that Tucker maybe on a borderline pitch on 3-2 had been struck out, and they jumped out of the dugout and then had to run back in, and Vladdy's talking to them from the other side of the field going back and forth. It was it was a lot of fun to see a player like Diaz, who's had a really strong year, but maybe both because of market and time zone and just the, you know, the quality of the team, frankly, this year doesn't get a ton of national attention. This is, you know, this will help him going forward. And this is probably the most attention maybe he's had in his entire career, which is well-deserved. Yeah, welcome to the big stage, right? And and he made sure to... Um to show that he belongs and to show yeah. that he feels comfortable. A really, really phenomenal moment. I think that very well-deserving as we talk about sort of the the allure of the All-Star game. These types of surprises are really what 
keeps the game interesting yeah. and, and what keeps this all-star break going really you know and this is why we tune in every year if it was always the same guys hitting that uh that go-ahead homer it wouldn't it honestly wouldn't be as interesting it would right? get stale so, so when you so when you have these like unsung heroes these guys that seem to come out of nowhere when they come up to bat and you're like oh i didn't even know this dude was an all-star and that's the guy that shines to me that is what makes uh sports incredible and and that is certainly what we saw yesterday to a lesser degree i think that uh we can also say that about bo bichette right who uh hit a, a clutch sack fly in the six if i'm not mistaken to yeah. give uh the al a brief lead there driving in salvador perez pretty cool moment for bo and uh kind of showing bo at his best right Bo doing what Bo does, which is putting the bat on the ball and, and, and driving in a run. What did you think of that performance? Not much outside of that for Toronto's hitters, but Merrifield, I think, worked a single. Yeah, he had a ground ball single. And that was kind of it. But uh, for Bo, a pretty cool moment. Yeah, he's still, you know, still looking for that first all-star hit, although I have a feeling he's going to get some more chances. But he hit that ball really hard to right field, too. It wasn't exactly like a big looper. And I think for him to, you know, come up in a big moment – it is really nice for him. He just missed out on being an all-star starter this year. He's having a fantastic year. So is Corey Seager, though, and it's understandable why Seager got that nod. But I think Bo, you know, is a very clutch player during the regular season for the Blue Jays, finds ways to really come up with hits a lot of the time when they need them. And in this case, it wasn't a hit, but it was what the American League needed. And, you know, for a, at least another inning there, it looked like Bo Bichette might have decided this game. And then Whit Merrifield, too, I believe Buck Martinez had mentioned on our show yesterday, he was hitless in right World on. Series action, or World Series, in All-Star action as there. well. Yeah, there. yeah, yeah, he'll get there. <laughs> but uh, in All-Star action as well. So for Whit Merrifield to come up with that hit, you know, he does get doubled off, but it was a phenomenal play by Austin Riley to catch it at third and then a, a great scoop over at first by Pete Alonso. So I, I do think it was nice that the Blue Jays, at least in a couple different ways, could shine. You know, there's we're going to get to the ugly at a certain mm, point here. I, and I think a lot of people know what's coming. But the Blue Jays, between Vladdy in the home run derby and then Bo and Witt in the All-Star game, all three of those guys at least got to have a, a moment at some point. And yeah. I think that's the thing that they'll probably remember more than really who won or who lost the game. I agree with you. Although uh, a streak snapping um, loss there, probably going to sting a little bit a little more bit. to be part of that. Yeah. But but I agree. And, uh, you know, that's kind of a kind of a good way to um, sort of move us to the bad. And I'm sorry that we have to do this. We also have to talk about the bad. Because there, there, there was were, bad. There, there were some things that, you bad. know what, it, it wasn't perfect. And I think if we're talking about the Blue Jays' offense here, a good place to start is Vlad, right? He uh, didn't really factor in a whole lot. He ended up with a strikeout as well. And I wonder how much of that was fatigue from the, from the home run uh, derby. I think it's entirely possible. You know, it, it is a, a tiring event, and you can see why. I mean, he hits 72 homers in about a 45-minute span, and and that's a lot more full-throttle swinging than you're going to do on a daily basis, even in your regular major league routine. You're not going to batting practice trying to hit a home run every time. You're hitting a lot of liners. You're taking more free-flowing swings. You're not yanking it as much. And I think we saw, you know, even the worst case scenario, not with Vlad, but with Luis Robert not even playing in the game uh, because it seems like I, I heard it on the television broadcast, it was like a calf tweak 
it seems like, something like yeah. that. So you hope Robert's okay, and that's just precautionary. And he did get to go and, and get introduced. But for Vlada, I would not be shocked whatsoever if there was some fatigue going there because there are a few things that are more tiring, I think, than the home run derby. I would probably argue the derby is much more tiring than the the all-star game itself, yeah. a game in which you only play a handful of innings. Yeah. Um, the error also wasn't uh, Not great. particularly particularly a, good from a, a gold glover, no less. In a pretty sharp defensive game. Yeah. Otherwise, That's yeah. That's right. It, yeah. It, th- that is something that that game had going for it, right? There, was, there were so many cool, uh, really full effort uh, defensive plays, which is you know, pretty different from maybe other all-star games in other leagues. You don't see a lot of defense, right? Yeah. And, and that was very, very nice to see. We were talking about it because it's tough because they were such phenomenal plays. Right. And, like, I love defense. But yes. for a lot of kids and, and casual fans, they want to see high-scoring games in these situations because they're thinking about the hitters more than the defensive players. Mm-hmm. And we were talking a little bit this morning when I got in, you know, in the NHL All-Star game, they don't really try on defense, mm-hmm. and it's three-on-three. Three. In the NBA All-Star game, I mean, they each score like 200 <laughs> points per team, and I don't even want to talk about the Pro Bowl because it hurts my brain. But I, I think that there isn't really the ability to a certain extent to even do that all the time in baseball. Like, sure, you don't have to dive if you don't want to dive. But on that Whit Merrifield play, what's Austin Riley going to do? not catch the liner hit right at him. It's going to, like, break his knee if he doesn't. Ball got hit 95 miles an hour right at his face. He has to catch that ball. And then, obviously, he's going to show off his arm and double off Merrifield at the same time. So I I do wish that the offense could have found a way to prevail a little more. But I also think that part of the changes that went on around baseball this year is that more athletic defensive players got prioritized again with the with the new set of rules. And I think in a positive way, we did see a lot of those guys impact the game in many ways. And just again, I mean, Austin Riley is just a phenomenal baseball player. Like watching him play third base was incredibly fun. Yeah. You know what, though? There were some guys that really put in an effort to, yes. um, to, to get the offense going, but uh, the replay review got in the way. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what to say about that. We were, we've been talking about this for a little bit. Um, is there really a need for a replay booth at the All-Star game? Although I will say it was pretty cool to watch in the broadcast sort of like the inside of the replay booth and, and what goes into it. Of course, they're not going to give away all the, the stage secrets there, but it, it was a, a kind of cool like behind-the-scenes scene mo- moment. At the same time, Jordan Romano versus Lourdes Gurriel Jr. It's ruled a home run on the field, and it, it would have been a game-tying home run, if I'm not yes. mistaken. Yeah, it would have made it 2-2. He trots through the bases. He's so excited, right? And uh, we have the delay, the replay review, and it turns out that it was actually a foul ball. Uh, to me, that goes down as a bad. Uh, and uh, And I know that it was against Romano, so... Blue Jays fans are probably thinking, well, it's for the best, but uh, it, it was a hanging slider. I don't think we, we can really yeah, argue. Yeah, that'll leak into our ugly discussion coming yeah, out. F- yeah, for sure. Um, and so, I, I don't know. I, it could have, the, the game, first of all, could have gone in a very, very different direction. And second of all, do we really need that sort of pause and, and pondering and it breaks the rhythm of the All-Star game? I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I kind of don't think we do. In a game that doesn't matter. Like the All-Star game, all sports are about entertainment. 
but because we want things to be done right, and there are a lot of people who really care about stuff like me and you, the replay makes sense in games to make sure that we get calls right a lot of the time. The All-Star game does not matter. Like, since 2017, it officially does not matter. No longer it decides anything. So it's just a game for pride, and even more than that, a game for fun. No one was sulking in the American League clubhouse, I'm sure. As much as I think they wanted to keep the streak up, I don't think that that many guys had a bad time yesterday just because the American League lost that game. I The only reason I like it, and if this is the the main support for them having replay there, I'll be okay with it. If they want to award someone who they think has been a strong replay official throughout the year, and that's because they're, they are an important part of the game. If it was, and I had the name yesterday and I don't have it today and I apologize because we were kind of laughing at the idea that there was a replay official yesterday, but you know, they put, they put extra umpires in the all-star game too, like they do in the playoffs. And obviously it doesn't really like, it's not a game that really warrants six umpires, but it's fine. So if they just want to award an opportunity to someone to get recognition, I get it. But like you're saying, I, I don't think replay even in actual games has ever made a game more entertaining. And all-star games are pure entertainment. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, little, I'm, I'm a little hesitant on that. Yeah. Can I take you one more place, which I'm not qualified to talk about? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface that. Uh, sure. I am a, a red-green colorblind person. Okay. But I think regardless of how your eyes see color, those were not nice jerseys yesterday. I did not enjoy them. What are oh your thoughts? My God. Okay, so first of all, to be in your head <laughs> seeing those jerseys, I, I, that's I can't even, there's no way I can like properly describe to you yeah. what I'm seeing because my colors are different colors. It's a whole thing. Oh, wow. Yeah. That in itself is, uh, I feel like we need a podcast just to talk about well, that. Yeah, well, yeah, that'll be the bonus <laughs> one. You catch it on Apple Podcasts or whatever. I but will, I will say this. I really kind of, I... Don't come for me, Disagree with me. Twitter, whatever. But uh, I kind of liked the jerseys. I will say that for the National League, some guys looked like they were wearing like dress pants or tuxedo pants or something uh, just because of the way that it fit and the black. It kind of, Josh Hader was one of those guys where I was like, what is he wearing? I right saw some now? people say like Lulu pants. Yeah, sure. Them. Yeah. Sure. Like, just like it, odd for sure. But really like the color. And I'm a sucker for anything that's like black and green. So for me, it looked nice. I can see, though, why people would think it's awkward. I understand that this is an unpopular opinion. On the AL side, I just legit liked it. I thought it was very, very pretty. I'll say the AL jersey I liked much more Mm -hmm. than the NL jersey. I also thought they could have just gone for a bit more in terms of what they were doing with the text and stuff. Like, it just... You know, it was just kind of an N on the helmet for yeah. the National League. Yeah, I, I, there, I didn't feel like there was a ton of flavor. I did like, you know, like the compass in the Northwest. And, and, and you know, it's notable. I think like three or four of the six umpires yesterday were Washington State natives. And I understand why they really want, you know, to highlight that, a, a kind of a remote part of the country that baseball doesn't go to a lot. But I don't know. I felt like, I have to say, I felt like I liked the jerseys more last year. With kind of like the, the like goldish trimming mm. and stuff like that, but I know that those were controversial too. And I will say that the business of jersey making these days is that like ninety percent of the people hate every jersey that comes out. So yeah. I know I'm part of the problem. 
That's pretty. That's pretty interesting. And I, I, the one maybe exception here is uh, the City Connect jerseys, right? I think that people tend to really like those, and it's understandable. They're they're very pretty for the most part. Except the Boston ones. Yeah. Sure. I'll sure. I'll yellow give you that. yellow Boston Red Sox. Jerseys. You know what? <laughs> I, yeah. I don't. I guess I'm. Um, I I like the idea of just going big and going that's fair. different. That's fair. And so if it's well executed, of course, right? Yeah, and, but you got to take a big swing to hit a homer. I get it. You, for sure. Sometimes, though, yeah. you're going to lose your bat like Vladdy did oh, yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's definitely part of the bad. Uh, we have some text on the good and the bad before we get to the ugly, I think, because that's the, the yep. biggest deal. Texas at 590, 590. Eddie in Fort Erie on the good and some of the defensive stuff. He said uh, he enjoyed the game, especially seeing a Rosarena's leaping catch with Cole on the mound. That was a great one. Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, and we're going to get to this in a sec. He says, but I just hope that Romano is going to be fine in time for Friday. And then on the bad, and I actually wasn't thinking about this, but I, I have to pretty wholeheartedly agree. Chris from Caledon, disappointed that Miggy didn't get voted in to appear in his last All-Star appearance with the, uh, with the commissioner system now and us knowing that Miguel Cabrera is done. I know that he's maybe slightly at a different stage, like Albert Pujols hit 20-something home runs last year. But Miguel Cabrera is pretty much on par with Albert Pujols sure. in terms of impact in the game of baseball. And it is interesting that he, he didn't factor in, really, into the All-Star festivities. And let me tell you this. If Julio Rodriguez not having had the greatest of seasons so far, found his way into the All-Star game because of what it means to Seattle into the game of baseball. I do believe that there is a case to be made that Miguel Cabrera should have sort of gotten the same treatment. I understand that there are very different scenarios and very different situations. What I am trying to say is that there are mechanisms in place to get those guys to the All-Star game for a reason based on what they represent. And it will go down as one of the biggest snubs, I think, because yeah. we know that Miggy, this is this is his swan song, right? Yeah. He, is, uh, he is gearing up for retirement. Everywhere he goes now, he gets a standing ovation from fans. It's been a journey for him. And not getting that final recognition... I don't, I don't know how it will be remembered, to be honest with you, but it, it, it kind of makes you think, right? How will this be uh, sort of uh, etched in the history of baseball? And will we um, maybe not necessarily regret, but look back and in hindsight be like, you know what? That was a passed up opportunity to honor one of the great uh, sluggers of our generation here. And our producer, Jeff Azaparty, reminding me, they did give it to Miggy last year mm -hmm. with Pujols, but... I don't know, knowing that this is his last season, I, yeah. I, I think it would have been huge. We we should really get to the ugly, though. The home run from Lourdes Gurriel Jr., while the replay mm. was going on, training staff comes out and talks to Jordan Romano, who, as reports came out from Shai Davidi of Sports and others, uh, reportedly felt something before he went out. Let's take a listen quickly to some audio from the Foul Territory podcast. Scott Braun and players A.J. Pruszynski, Eric Kratz, and Jason Kipnis discussed the Romano situation last night. Just learned this after the game, too. Dusty Baker told our guy Ken Rosenthal that Jordan Romano felt tightness in his lower back, wait for it, on his final bullpen pitch. That's why I remember he was taken out mid-AB, and we're like, huh? Yeah. Romano enters the game, 
throws five pitches. Last one was that fly ball that got overturned. Originally was called a home run. So did he tell them that he felt the tightness? He did not, clearly. So he felt it and he entered the game. Yes. He's you can't. like, I can get through an inning and did not tell him. <laughs> can now, I make <laughs> Yes. If you're a Blue Jays fan, full panic set in. Oh, if he's God. out, they're already chasing it. If he's out for a bit, Crouchy, you are stressed. You are panicked. And Romano's entire break has now, his flight was going to go home probably. He's going to the six to get some treatment. I'm all about honesty and transparency. We do that every day on our show. But could I make the case that Romano should have been like, yeah, I felt the tightness on my last pitch. No, and then I came out. I think it was a big deal. And I, you're always playing through things. So to me, as much as Blue Jay fans are pissed, I'm tipping my cat to Romano because he was out there. He wanted to try to pitch. Who knows? He might jog in. Oh, I'm wow. fine. Adrenaline. I'm good. But this game doesn't mean anything. It's, it's so cool. If, and obviously, I don't mean it like people are there. We love to watch it. But the Blue Jays season's more important. And if he's fine, he's fine. I want p- people to play. We complain about that. But if you do feel a tweak, Hmm. No, How many I know you guys want to see the guys he's not play. Do it. He's not because you just don't want to let you're putting someone else in a bad spot. You don't want to let other people down. But then he left the game anyway. Yeah. Well, well it didn't get better. It. He tried. So I give him credit. He tried. But okay. he couldn't make it through. And hopefully, it's nothing bad. It's just, if he misses time, it's a controversy. Why? Not 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 an all star. Oh, should we play the all star no, game? No, it's not that kind of controversy. It's just. People saying, no, if you feel up, don't enter the game. I disagree. I, he's a grown man. He's in that situation. He knows what he wants to do. You got to go enter the game. You think those five pitches that he threw made his back injury worse that he has? I have no idea. I doubt do you it. think so. I don't think it did. I think it was already there. And so he's like, I can gut through this and get three outs and move to the next guy. And then after he gave up the foul home run he's like maybe i can't do this so they brought in uh lorenzen right with his vans cleats on and he did his job mm-hmm. shout out to michael lorenzen's vans but that was the foul territory podcast against scott braun uh, former blue jay eric kratz jason kipnis aj Przinski discussing it jordan romano it, it's been widely reported felt a bit of tightness mm-hmm. still went into the game obviously only threw two pitches and left the game what are your thoughts on, on the situation as a whole? Yeah, I mean, it's tough, right? You get voted in last year. You don't get to pitch in the game. You get voted in again late again this year. And all you want to do is face some all-stars, right? Especially with a former teammate coming up. It's a pretty special moment. It is. Uh I don't know who who it was that it said that said on that clip adrenaline plays a big factor in these things and maybe Romano was counting on that a little bit. He is a grown man and he could and should decide for himself what he's capable of and what he's not capable of. Now after he almost gives up that that home run, that slider was clearly hanging, right? It didn't move the way that it should have at all and that tells you something for him to reassess and say, you know what? Okay. I got my chance. I did this. I got an out. I can say that 
you know, if it never happens again, I can say that I did it. Get me out of this game. So I don't think that anyone should be upset about that. And I also don't think that the, uh, the five pitches that he threw necessarily made things better or worse. Now, if he misses time, he was probably going to miss time anyway, is kind of my opinion. I, I don't uh, believe that going into the All-Star game and, and pitching the way that he did is going to make a huge difference in his uh, physical condition. It's a long trip, right, from, uh, from here or from wherever he was to Seattle. There must be some factor about that too, just fatigue from, from the travel overall. And obviously, Romano has pitched a lot. He pitched a lot in the first half of For the sure. season. There's a reason why he's among the Sage leaders this, this year. So all of that plays a factor. Now, if you're there... And sure, you feel some tightness in your bullpen. You're going to go for it, I think, more often than not. That is what makes pro players shine and, and really, you know, muscle through difficult situations. I'm okay with it, Ben. What are your thoughts on that whole thing? I, I think at the end of the day, I would understand if people are upset at the situation, but I don't think that I can be upset at the guy because I think in his shoes, I'd probably do the same thing. And I think one thing that's, I think there's two things that that are really notable before we uh, we hit a break here because we're a little bit up against it. I think that we really don't know how severe the injury is, like, and that and that I think should have a lot of people wait to before they react too much because he could be back on Friday. Like they have not put him on the injured list, they have not done done anything like that. And I think that the threshold for where you take yourself out of a regular game and an All Star game is different. And I think point two is that I think. He's likely pitched with a tight back more than once this season. So th that's the thing where you never know. I, I was talking to the guys on the morning show today, and even they were saying, you just have no idea if it's nothing or something. Right on. And until we really get more information on that, I, I think any major reaction in any direction is probably just wasted emotion and energy to a certain extent. Agreed. And I am curious to, to, to hear from listeners, from Blue Jays fans. For sure. Are you mad at Jordan Romano from for going into that game how do you feel because um you know as a fan that uh, that's got to be a fascinating discussion as well yeah and I think you could be mad at the situation too even if you you don't blame Romano for it in general just the happenstance of having a guy maybe tweak something a little bit in an all-star game text in at 590 590 we're going to take a quick break when we come back we have a discussion with sunday night baseball analyst and sirius xm mlb network host eduardo perez coming up a lot more all-star reactions and a whole lot more to go on jay's talk plus taking you all the way to noon on sportsnet 360 and the sportsnet radio network Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus, nearing the end of our first hour, going till noon with Julia Kreutz. I'm Ben Schulman, filling in for Blake Murphy, Lance Kennedy, Jeff Azuparty, Jennifer Rolnick here as well. Yesterday, we had the privilege of catching up with one of the great minds around the game of baseball, Eduardo Perez, analyst on ESPN Sunday Night Baseball, 
host on the leadoff spot on Sirius XM MLB Network Radio. Gave us a lot, even some Canadian stuff we didn't know about him. Yeah. So take a listen. This is our chat with Eduardo Perez. We continue on Jay's Talk Plus with a great guest, part of ESPN Sunday Night Baseball coverage, MLB Network Radio, and the Home Run Derby this year, as well as draft coverage. Eduardo Perez joins us. Eduardo, how are you doing? Thanks so much for coming on the show. I am doing well. I am exhausted. You know, after the after the draft and then you have the home run derby where the emotions are high, where the players take over and you're just watching one after the other leave the ballpark with all the fans at T Mobile Park. It's it's like everything just falls on you. So basically this is this is the highlight. I love this part of the season, love this part of the year and and to be able to do it in Seattle. And I imagine for you guys, it has to be bananas that Vladdy has won this, not only the city of Toronto, but the entire country of Canada. Are you like Julio Rodriguez after hitting 41 homers type of exhausted right now? Uh, I'll tell you this. I was, I was surprised that Julio was able even to do 41 in that round. And, you know, we've, and one of the reasons I did not pick Julio to win this was because he's the host. And there's so much that's expected out of him. From the travel from their last game in Houston to Seattle, he has to wake up early, has to be in so many events, pulled from one side to the other, to then all of a sudden be able to focus, not in, in, in physically and mentally, be there in the grind. I was utterly impressed with how he performed yesterday. Uh, and I thought... You know, I thought, oh, I was wrong. This guy is putting on a show from the first swing. But you could tell that fatigue set in little by little. He's got a great BP thrower as well. Pena was phenomenal. Broke that down. And for a home run derby to be able to be impressed with your BP thrower, uh, you know that that guy was money the entire time. Eduardo, that's a that's a, a good point, right? And and one that maybe we don't think about as much. The fact that there are burdens that come with with being the host. There are, there's a little more responsibility, and that certainly affects uh, performance. But as we look at Julio Rodriguez's overall body of work this year and what he's trying to achieve, what the Mariners are trying to achieve, what do you expect from him in the second half of the season? How can Julio sort of regain his form here as the Mariners try to make the postseason again? Yeah, so the first half wasn't as he would want it to be, and a lot of people question, well, should he be an all-star or not? But it being in Seattle sort of solidified that in a major way. And I think what he has to do is do what, and you could say, you know, you could say what Albert Pujols did last year, where the first half wasn't great. He was a commissioner's pick. He was in the all-star game. In the, in, the, in the home run derby, and then he turned it around in the second half and had a monster second half season. Um, Juan Soto did the same thing. Went to Colorado a few years ago. Was not doing well, but he only went for the home run derby, and he and and did really, you know, didn't win it, but did well the second half of the season. And it's like a free batting practice that you can have to work on being able to lift the baseball. Not only really lift the baseball pull the baseball. All of his home runs were on the pull side yesterday. And I feel that he found something there. I think he got a little fatigue. I think the bottom hand started getting a little tired as well. But still, just being a part of it 
and understanding the cheers that he received yesterday and the ones he will receive today when his name is announced, I think he's going to have a second half that mentally he's going to understand how big of a star he is, not only in Seattle, but at the major league level. It sounds like a lot of that can also be applied to uh, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. here, Eduardo, and that was my next question. How much of yeah. it is a, is, is a similar situation to Julio? Very similar. You look at both guys. I mean, they're not in the 20s in home runs this year, but they know how to – they have the skill set to be able to do it. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. right now, um, I knew and I felt, and I was like, this guy's going to win this derby. He's going to win this derby because he has experience, because he has a chip on his shoulder, because he decided, not his father, he decided he was going to do it. His daughter asked him to do it. And, you know, those those things are, are what we see in front of our eyes of being able to mature. And now in the second half, I expect greatness out of Vladimir Goro Jr. Um, he did this event. He worked at this event. And you could tell that he was like a heavyweight that was tired in the old school 14th and 15th round, which we will never see again. <laughs> but that's that's what it looked like. And you could tell that his legs were, you know, he was gassed, but yet he was hungry for this. And I think this will also excel him in the second half as well. You talked about, you know, the environment in Seattle, the All-Star game returning for the first time since 2001. And you got to play part of your final season with the Mariners. What do you think it means to such a passionate baseball community to have all of this going on in their city and kind of have the baseball world descending on Seattle right now? Well, they're putting on a show. And I think you can tell that the city works as a team. Um, it works as a team because, you know, the draft and the play ball events have been at Lumen Field. So just right across, pretty much right across the street from from the old Safeco, now T-Mobile uh, Park. And, and to be able to join in and understand how important this is for the Northwest, understand how important it is to be able to promote the city as well to not only the rest of the United States, but the, but the entire world. I think they're putting on a really beautiful show. And, and you can tell that they've uh, put the efforts outside the stadium, inside the stadium. Uh, the people, were, uh, the stadium was packed yesterday. It's been a great event so far from the HBCU uh, game that was played on Friday to the Futures game that was played on Saturday. Also the, the celebrity softball. We had Macklemore that has been a part of this event as well. And he's huge uh, in the Seattle area. And to be able to have the home run derby like it was yesterday. And today, I expect greatness as well. The weather has held up beautifully. And I think this town has put on and very proud of, of having been a Mariner and, and knowing that now many, many other fans that have not been to the great Northwest are realizing how beautiful it is. Now, they take a, a trip a little bit more north to Vancouver, B.C. That's my favorite city in the world. So I, I, I would love for that to happen. Uh, the fans could also take a take a moment to be able to go there and, and enjoy it and, and go on that Capistrano suspension bridge, who, which I love. Every time I went to Vancouver, I would always go there. Yeah, I was going to ask, Eduardo, what is it about uh, Vancouver that you, uh, that you love so much? Oh, wow. Let, don't get me started. You have to understand, <laughs> I, played AAA, I played AAA baseball there. That was my home. And as a matter of fact, a uh, cool story, when I did get called up to the big leagues, 
we were in Scottsdale. The Vancouver Canadians were in Scottsdale. Max Oliveras was my manager. And he goes, congratulations. You're going up to the big leagues. You're a big leaguer. And I looked at him and I said, why? I want to go back to Vancouver. I mean, it's because it it was an experience unlike any other. I lived as a kid in Montreal. Um, To be able to play baseball in Vancouver, um, loved everything about it. From Queen Elizabeth Park, I would walk it almost on a daily uh, almost daily from Nat Bailey Stadium. And also I'd go into the city and if I needed to also, the food is great, the culinary aspect of it, the, the greenery, the, the weather, um, the summer is beautiful, the sunsets late. Everything about it is wonderful. And as a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, that's where I went with my wife um, after the All-Star Game was to Vancouver uh, because I wanted her to see it. Uh, she had never seen it before. You were there for, you know, this entire All-Star week and some Blue Jay fans traveling down from Western Canada. Of course, you said you played there, which you did in the Angel system in the 90s. A lot of people talk about Montreal as a place where maybe baseball could come to Canada. What do you think about the idea of of the potential of Major League Baseball in Vancouver as well? I, I doubt it. I'll be honest with you. And I think it's, I don't know if it's because it's the market of the Mariners people coming down south and also when I went there I saw a lot of baseball a lot of people watching baseball from the Blue Jays I think it's I think it's a really interesting dynamic I love the city don't get me wrong but I think that right now is uh, many years away to be realistic with it I remember when the Mariners would go and do their spring training they do a game there at the BC Dome I you know there's there's so many things i smile when i when i speak of vancouver and i try to tell everyone that i know you have to go you have to go to victoria as well uh you have to go to the mountains uh it's 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 a beautiful place to be able to uh, to see many aspects of the world and the best part about it is the people the, the the people are great it's it's a melting pot of so many it's a gateway also um uh, to asia so i really enjoyed the city there and i and the food did I talk to you guys about the food like a couple minutes ago? I'm going to end up on the food because it was fabulous. That's incredible. Uh, just to wrap this up, Eduardo, we really appreciate your time here. Speaking about the, the the large amount of Blue Jays fans that are coming to Seattle and that love the game there so much, um, what have you sort of made of uh, the Blue Jays' first half of the season and and what are some of your maybe predictions or what are you expecting from this team in the second half here? Okay, I'll, I'll be straight up. I know the team's over 500, but I'm going to be honest with you. I think they've underperformed. I think they've underperformed because we I expected this team to be a first-place team. And I wouldn't have been surprised if it was a wire-to-wire type first-place team. The talent is there. The pitching is there. Um, they, are, they are a team that can defend. They're a team that can hit the ball out of the ballpark. They're very athletic. They're young. They have that starting pitching, and they have a very good closer in, in Romano. And you know, to be able to see a team like this that went out and got complimentary pieces in the off season by left-handed bats, um, you know, I felt that they had a balance to now not only win this division, but also go deep in October. Now, that's not saying that they can't win this division because I still believe, I believe in the Blue Jays. I still believe in the Yankees and I definitely believe in the Tampa Bay Rays. But if you would have told me early on in the season, okay, this is a team that started winning so many games in a row, I would have picked the Blue Jays and not the Rays to be able to do it. And, you know, the Rays got off to a lofty and heavy start. 
So it's 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 hard to play catch up, especially in a balanced schedule like this year has been. But at the same time, the talent that the Blue Jays have up the middle, in center field, in the corners is spectacular. And I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if they now double down on this in the second half of the season and play a lot better than they did, at, even though they're above 500 team in the first half. That was Eduardo Perez yesterday of ESPN Sunday Night Baseball and Sirius XM MLB Network Radio. A great chat, and hey, who would have known he had so many links and such an affinity for the city of Vancouver? Honestly, it surprised me, and uh, it was very refreshing to hear a guy like Perez hold Vancouver at such a, a high regard. We know that he spent a lot of time there when he was first starting his career in, in AAA. Really, really cool, the, the type of thing that, uh, you know, and honest too, right, doesn't necessarily think that there is uh, room for Major League Baseball, at least right now in Vancouver, but uh, making a name for the city, right? He's Absolutely. telling everyone around the game, go visit Vancouver. It's, it's such a beautiful place. I'll be honest, I've never been and uh, it uh, added to my, uh, you know, th- th- this project to, to, to go see BC. Yeah, you should go. I, I went right. once when I was a, a kid. It was very fun. A lot, to do to ra- a lot to do around there. And and maybe a reason that, you know, as the minor leagues have kind of moved out of Canada, it's the lone spot still where the minor leagues exist in Canada. Congrats to the Vancouver Canadians uh, who won the first half of the high A advanced season. And they are going to the playoffs because that's a two-half system. So, Good for them. Uh, happy birthday to Nathan Lucas, by the way. Nathan Lucas's birthday today. We have a whole lot more coming up. A lot of fun in the second hour of Jay's Talk Plus. Keegan Matheson will come on the show. Bob Nightingale scheduled to come on as well. She's Julia Kreutz. I'm Ben Schulman. We're filling in for Blake Murphy, and we'll be back in a moment on Sportsnet 360 and the Sportsnet Radio Network. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkins Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the second hour of Jays Talk Plus, taking you until noon. I'm Ben Schulman. She's Julia Kreutz, Jeff Azapardi, Lance Kennedy, Jennifer Rolnick behind the scenes. Two great guests coming up this hour. Keegan Matheson and Bob Nightingale will join us. We wanted you to text in your Romano thoughts. We already discussed it in hour number one, so if you missed it, you can catch the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. But we'll go through some of these now and a little summarizing here. But Dave in Collingwood, you know, prefacing we don't know the injury, and and he was saying that essentially he, he didn't have an issue with it if it happened in the game, but thought because Romano knew that something in the report saying that he knew his back was tight before going into that game uh, – that it, it might it might have been irresponsible to go in there. Uh, but again, emphasize that we don't really know exactly if he's going to miss time or not. Chris from Aurelia says we can't be mad at Romano after not making it in last year. Could be his last chance. So no hard feelings. Uh, Brian in Toronto saying that, uh, that choosing to come in when his back tightened up at the pen, irresponsible. Hopefully this doesn't result in an injury stint and he's good to go on Friday. Uh, Ed and Aurelia saying a couple of Aurelia texters. Good for you guys. Uh, team comes first, especially when they're in a close playoff race. 
uh, TJ in Stouffville, uh, you know, he's talking about how Hazel had mentioned uh, that Bo said that he had took his last All-Star game for granted. Bo didn't make the All-Star game in 2022, which is notable. Uh, and, you know, TJ highlighting that Romano may not get another chance to appear or throw in an All-Star game. So he made a conscious uh, decision to, you know, take part in what could be a once-in-a-lifetime event. However, you know, the lack of Jay's overall pitching depth would be, you know, in a little bit of trouble if he misses time. Again, we discussed uh, a lot of that last hour, sure. but, uh, you know, some different sides there coming from Blue Jays fans, I think, as expected. Oh, yeah. And all valid opinions, too, I will say. Um, obviously, you know, like I said, I defended in the first hour here that uh, Romano sort of had every right to, to go ahead and pitch, even though he felt something in the pen. You never know how these things are going to turn out. Uh, I think we've all been guilty of uh, of doing some uh, arguably irresponsible things at work, uh, Ben. And so, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's part of it. And especially when it comes to a once-in-a-life opportunity or what could be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, this clearly meant a lot to him. And so I'm not mad, but always nice to uh, to hear from the listeners and to to sort of give space to all of these uh, perspectives, which are super, super valid. Yeah, please text in your thoughts, 590, 590. You might have some thoughts on this one. An idea that you had brought up a little bit before that mm. I want to kind of expand on here before we talk with your colleague Keegan Matheson. Are there All-Stars or which All-Stars could the Blue Jays potentially see wearing a Blue Jays uniform coming up post-trade deadline? Yeah. Are there people that played in this game that could be Blue Jays coming up? now? I think we'll both preface this by saying yeah. it's probably unlikely. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, there, there's at least one guy in Michael Lorenzen who we can maybe make a case for. Yeah. I do believe that uh, the Blue Jays have the assets to, to pull off a trade for, for Lorenzen. There's a lot that uh, will obviously go into that. But given where the Blue Jays are with pitching and maybe the need to expand a little bit on their rotation, it does seem like that would be a, a likely target or at least a possible one. But from what I hear, Ben, you have some uh, left field options for me here, and I'm so looking forward to hearing them. So please go ahead. Oh, yeah. So I'll just let the people know, by the way, Lorenzen 15 starts 403 ERA, expiring contract. That's mm. something that I think, you know, a lot of those – Things are really attractive to the Blue Jays. Right he's also pitched out of the pen. So if later in the season or in a playoff situation, you wanted to put him back there, he's done it before. I'll kind of go in, in escalating order of how uh, maybe outrageous I think these could be. And I, I was looking here to try and find some fits. I wasn't sitting there being incredibly realistic. But the Blue Jays, you know, potentially might want to inject a little bit more offense into the team. And, yes. And they actually, you know, might want to inject some of that offense on the right side, despite what they did uh, with left-handed hitters in this offseason, especially now that they've gotten some production from guys like Brandon Belt or Kevin Kiermeyer and some smaller offensive contributions elsewhere. How about making a move for yesterday's All-Star Game MVP in Elias Diaz? The Blue Jays have gotten a lot of offense out of Danny Jansen, but mm -hmm. not nearly as much out of Alejandro Kirk not just in this first half of this season, but in the second half of last season as well. Diaz is in the second to last year of his deal. Then he would become a free agent. He's not incredibly expensive. He makes about $5 million a year right now. He's a catcher with a 763 OPS. He has good contact skills for a catcher, which even 
Danny Jansen at his best is never really a great contact hitter. He's a great power hitter. And I wonder what you think about Diaz making the long trip across the continent from Colorado up to Toronto. That's not a bad one. I thought you were going to say Brent Rooker. No. <laughs> um, but I kind of like it because the catching depth, we've seen it. It has been tested yeah. this year, right? When uh, Danny Jansen goes on the IL, Kirk is just not producing the same way that he did last year. It was sort of an up and down season for him last year when it comes to power as well. But it seems to be a little bit deeper. You know, those issues seem to be a little bit deeper this uh, this season so far. And then when you can't count on Jansen for whatever reason, may that be, you know, just it's his day to, to sit out a game or he goes on the IEL. So many things have happened to Jansen that are also just a little bit of bad luck when it comes to his injuries. Then you have Tyler Heineman as an option. You know, we've seen him come up and down as a depth piece for the Blue Jays on the catching side. It just doesn't seem like it's enough. And so targeting a guy like that would not be a bad idea at all. And when it comes to the Rockies, their farm system isn't necessarily great right now. And this is a team that is not good on the major league end either. So it would be beneficial to the Rockies to sort of backfill on the farm system side. The Blue Jays, would have the appropriate pieces maybe to make a trade like that. It would uh, it would also be interesting to, you know, sort of gauge the price for, for a guy like him. But it sounds realistic enough to me, I would say, Ben. And it, it is possible that the Blue Jays could be a team where carrying three catchers might be justifiable, like you mentioned the injuries, and they like to DH catchers, which I think you could easily do with Diaz. You already do with both Jansen and Kirk. And if you're DHing a catcher and starting a catcher, it really helps your substitutions if you can have another catcher there so that you can pinch hit for people in different oh, yeah. spots. And, and they haven't used the 26th or 25th man a ton right. so far this year. Yeah, you know, I, I understand not wanting to carry three catchers when it was Gabriel Moreno, who was just starting out his career, didn't have the major league experience, and you're going for a playoff uh, race here, right? But this is Elias Diaz a guy who's had some experience, who's proven himself, and who is now an all-star MVP. So it, it would make a little bit more sense if the Blue Jays chose to go the three-catcher route. Okay, let's let's keep this moving. Give I'm me the about, next one. I'm about to escalate a lot. Right. Um, the Blue Jays have one of the, the better left-handed relievers in baseball right now, and Tim Mays. Yes. But they only have, even though they have, you know, maybe a Swanson or a Richards who play well two left-handed batters, they only have the one lefty at the major league level. Now, there's a bad team right now in the National League with a pretty good lefty, and that's Josh Hader of the San Diego oh, Padres man. in the final year of his I deal. I knew this was coming. In the final year of his deal. And I'm not saying to take the seat of Jordan Romano as the closer. Right. I'm saying to give them a really good left-handed option who maybe in the pursuit of a title would be fine pitching in more eighth innings. And as this bullpen continues to pitch so much leverage – I mean, how many times has Romano had to pitch two days in a row? Yep. Then you have Hayter to close games on the third day. And after a really up-and-down season last year, he's been phenomenal this season. He's a 108 ERA and a, a big expiring contract on a bad team. Yeah, that is um, – that you did escalate indeed. I, I escalated a lot. In, in value <laughs> that they need to trade, I escalated, like, it's, aggressively. This there. is just my visceral reaction because you did not give me these uh, – 
before yes, we yeah, went I, on the I air. kept them close to my chest <laughs> intentionally. But uh, yes, it would make sense. Uh, I think he will probably be a a, a well coveted piece come the trade deadline, especially if uh, if uh, his team deci- decides that they actually want to um, to sell at the deadline, which we never know, right? But uh, it, it can be the case. I wonder how he would fit in. And I mean that, you know, it's not always that closers adjust well to not pitching in the ninth. For sure. And I think that it'll be very hard to um, sort of dethrone, quote unquote, Jordan Romano from that position. And we saw it with Craig Kimbrell himself, right? When he went to the White Sox and that just did not work. Yeah. So that to me would be the the biggest sort of issue point, but not not a bad one it does he he would fit it's just a matter of how well would he adjust to a new league for to sure completely new hitters yep and to not necessarily having that specific role of the closer yeah i almost wonder if you could put him in like a you know 2016 andrew miller cleveland role right where it's like hey you're not necessarily going to close the game we still have our closer for that but maybe you pitch the highest leverage situation of the entire game. Maybe they load the bases in the sixth, or maybe in the seventh inning, there's a runner on second in the, the middle of the orders coming up. That's when we bring you in. But you are right. I mean, even you know, the midseason adjustment last year within the National mm-hmm. League did not go well right for Hader, and, and he turned it around this year. But it's interesting. So that wasn't even my biggest swing yet. So this I love is, it. This is the, the final one, and I still... None of these, I think, are impossible, but as I go on, they're less and less likely. I had mentioned Elias Diaz, yes. who I think would be a great addition, but there was one guy that really seemed glued to Vladimir Guerrero Jr. yesterday and could solve a lot of problems for the Blue Jays at once with a lot of power in his bat as well. What if Salvador Perez swapped out his Royals blue for Blue Jays blue, rejoined his teammate Whit Merrifield, and made one more run after being one of the stars of the team that knocked out the Blue Jays in 2015. He flips sides and brings that potential 40-homer power to Toronto and doesn't have to play all the time because the Blue Jays have Danny Jansen as well. Yes. I Yes. That would be <laughs> phenomenal. Does he have a no-trade clause or something like that? So I'm almost positive. He, yeah. has, he has a yeah. no-trade clause, not to mention... Everyone else I mentioned contractually makes a lot of sense. Diaz was a a year-and-a-half rental. The other guys were half-season rentals. For Perez, it would be this half-season, 2024 and 2025, and not a cheap contract either, with either a a buyout or a team option in 26. I do think, even though the scenarios aren't realistic, in any (laughs) realistic scenario where you trade for him, you probably send a catcher the other way Mm -hmm. because unlike Diaz where it's short term and maybe you run three catchers for a bit, you have still, even with Kirk struggling, if you were to trade for Perez and not trade one of those guys away, you have three major league quality catchers and not enough places, I think, to to use them over a multi-year stretch. Yeah. It's by far the most prospect capital you have to give up. But maybe the fact that there's so much money left and Kansas City isn't contending Maybe they'd want to get something like this off their books. I think a lot of it also comes down with Perez to does he want to get traded and the no trade clause would be part of that. Listen, 
beyond sort of adding that type of power bat and a catcher catcher that can actually produce what it would do is it would add a guy with so much veteran presence and experience to a clubhouse that at times has um, seemed maybe still growing into its own type thing. And it would be awesome. Like it would be great to see a guy like Vlad actually be able to learn from Perez on a day-to-day basis. I agree with you. It's, it doesn't seem particularly realistic, but man, that would be fun, right? It, yeah. it, it would be a great addition to the team and the fans would just go nuts. Right? Oh, yeah. I mean, how could you not love it? This is a guy, like you said, with the experience. He's played in two World Series, won one, over 100 plate appearances in the playoffs, hit two home runs in that ALCS to knock out the Blue Jays in 2015 and has been one of the better catchers in baseball for, sure. for the last four seasons, really. You know what that sounds like, though? That sounds like an MLB The Show trade. Yeah, that's the you thing. You know what I mean? <laughs> you when dare you... to dream a little bit. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's um, And this is what we're here for, Ben. For sure. We are here to uh, discuss the most unlikely scenarios as well as what's happening right in front of us, and that's that's what makes this conversation and this show so nice. So, I mean, like maybe Brent Rooker, is there anyone else that you really even, even in these kind of like half dream scenarios or? I really like Brent Rooker here. I, okay. I, I do. I know that the Blue Jays would probably have to give up a lot, but they have a history of, of deals with, uh, with the A's. And this is a team that's very much still in the thick of a rebuild. So the Blue Jays could sort of dispose of some assets seems far-fetched overall because again he's going to be extremely coveted come the trade deadline for sure but he would be a good addition for this team right now as they search for those home runs and for that power and all that to talk a little bit more blue jays we have a guest on the line here on jays talk plus your colleague keegan matheson of mlb.com blue jays reporter keegan we asked Shai Davidi a couple days ago, and I bring this up because, you know, you were covering a lot of the draft coverage. We asked him to draft a Blue Jays media member to play on a softball team. I served you right up to him, and he passed on you for Ben Nicholson-Smith. Your thoughts? Okay, this is just another win for the analytics community who <laughs> don't appreciate old-school baseball. That's amazing. That is ridiculous. Okay, BNS would put the ball in play. He would work a count in softball. Like, he would be working a 3-2 count. He'd have it all calculated. I would be going for pure power. Like, I think you want me on the bench as that backup DH, you know, that 39-year-old DH type who kind of clombers in. But, man, oh, man, having analytics just ruined this sport if I am getting <laughs> left on the bench for that. It kind of sounds like your player comp is, is almost a late career Matt Stairs. Absolutely. I am there to mash. You know, my, my career went downhill around age five or six. You know, when you move from the small diamond in your hometown to the slightly bigger diamond, yeah. that's when athleticism came into play. And it really went downhill uh, again. You know, even at that point, analytics, taking down the power bet. Keegan, so nice to talk to you during the break. We haven't seen each other for a while. So this is a, uh, this is fun. Thank you for coming on. Uh, we, I, I edited your piece yesterday. We worked on it together. Your piece about this draft class, day three came to a close. And uh, you wrote a little bit about sort of striking that balance between 
safer bets, quote unquote, and players with uh, higher upside, such as Arjun Namala, the Blue Jays uh, first round pick this year. How have the Blue Jays sort of struck that balance? And, and what did you see from this draft class so far? Yeah, early on, I, I see the Blue Jays doing some of that balance early on, you know, similar to what they did last year when they were taking some high schoolers and Brandon Barriera, Tucker Toman. If you went all high schoolers, uh, one, two, three, four, five, you might hit big or you might end up looking terrible. And that's where this balance comes from. So along with Namala, you're drafting some college arms. You're drafting Watts Brown. You get O'Halloran, the Canadian left-hander, who's a safer pick. And nothing is safe in in baseball, but safer than a 17-year-old at least. So I think you saw the Blue Jays balance out some of that risk and that reward up top. Someone like Namala at 17 we're talking about four or five years of development, whereas some of these guys can jump in and help out single-A Dunedin, high-A Vancouver, pretty quickly. So a little bit of balance there. And then once you get past rounds five, six, seven, you see teams start to challenge, you know, looking for their types a little bit more, looking for the types of guys they like to get in their system and taking a few more risks. What do you think the impact of losing that second-round pick for the Chris Bassett signing had on the strategy in the early rounds of drafting that has to be a factor here not just in terms of players but uh financially you know money is not the exciting part of drafts that we love to talk about but it controls so much of this even as high as picks one two three money really matters in this sense so balancing where the blue jays are going to take their big swings how often they can try to sign a guy away from college and keep him into their system. It is a factor. You know, they've been there before, certainly something they've had to work around and not ideal, but I think you take Chris Bassett, lose that number two and still feel pretty good with where you're at. Keegan, speaking of assignability, which is sort of a buzzword these days in baseball, is there anyone that the Blue Jays have taken this year that you see as a challenge for them to sign? I think you look quickly to high schoolers. Uh, They're in round four, so their third overall pick. The right-hander they picked out of Florida, Landon Marutis, which I I hope I'm saying okay. We're still in the early days of these players in the organization, but a guy who would have an NCAA commitment, uh, a young man who pitches and plays the infield on the days he's not pitching. So the Blue Jays really hoping they can have him focus on pitching and get the most out of that. But you saw something similar last year with Tucker Toman, who I mentioned earlier. These guys in rounds two, three, four, five, who have commitments to play NCAA baseball. But that's also why the Blue Jays drafted him 121st overall when at MLB Pipeline we had him ranked number 72. There would be some teams looking at that and saying, hmm, I, I don't know if we can sign him away. Maybe some teams had already drafted a couple of high schoolers and were thinking, We need to keep money on board for that. And there's always some lower down. Like the famous example back in the day was Rowdy Tellez, who I think was round 30. The Blue Jays couldn't sign a couple of guys higher up, so they gave Rowdy a big bonus, kept him away from, I think, UCLA at the time. But when you look a little further down, there are a couple of high schoolers, even a Canadian kid, Sam Shaw, in the ninth. So if you can't spend that money up high, there's always a place for it. Just looking at the profiles of the players, you know, a lot of people watched day one and saw Namala get picked, but a lot going on in All-Star Week as the preceding rounds 
went on. Are there a guy or two that you think Blue Jays fans should should really take a look at here that was picked kind of rounds two and on? Yeah, Namala definitely fascinating at the top. His power profile is exciting. I, I know that if you are a casual fan watching the Jays game, you love power. And it's always fun when there is a prospect who has the potential to be a legitimate power bat. So the Blue Jays haven't developed a lot of those internally lately. That'll be fun. I think when you start to look down this list, even getting into the later rounds, the Blue Jays have loved these prospects. We're kind of like a Spencer Horwitz, who was, I think, a 24, 28th round pick back in 2019, but has turned into a legitimate prospect. You have somebody like Brennan Orff in the 13th round. You go down a little further, Sam Kalasingham in the 17th round. These are guys who reach base at a ridiculous rate. You're talking on-base percentages around 500, more walks than strikeouts. That's kind of a type that the Blue Jays like, is taking a chance on someone like that who, in a junior year in college, was reaching base at a ridiculous number. And, hey, let's see if we can teach him some power. Let's see if we can add another skill on top of that. Because once you get past rounds five, six, seven, you're really looking for one standout thing. You, know, you can make your boring picks who you think will help out single A Dundee next year, sure. But it gets fun when you target one really exceptional tool. Some guys that'll be blazing speed. With these couple of players, it is that elite plate approach that you hope you can kind of do what they've done with Alan Roden from last year, a third rounder, and add something to it. Because if you have an exceptional plate approach and you can do something else, then you're talking about a really exciting prospect. Keegan, staying in the prospect realm, but uh, switching gears just a little bit, uh, talking about the Blue Jays' farm system right now, have there been any surprising storylines or, you know, uh, happenings here that we weren't exactly expecting in this uh, in the minors for the Blue Jays that have, uh, have stood out to you? This has been a rough year, I, I think, frankly, for the Blue Jays, their top 30, top 50-ish prospects. Uh, many of them are turning the corner, but a rough start, especially on the pitching front. You do have some good stories beyond that top 30, guys like Adam Klopfenstein, Chad Dallas, for example. But when you look at the real top names, and this is about developing star players, really helping your organization it's been tough at a lot of points. Now, Arelvis Martinez is a great example of someone who's turned that around. Through April, he was bad, downright bad. There's no way around it. There's no way you can soften it with prospecty language saying he's developing yada yada. No, it was terrible. Since then, he has been one of the hottest hitters in the minor leagues. His power is incredible when he can get to it. He's walking more. He's taking far better plate approaches at the plate you are seeing a guy with truly special power at 21 years old. Wouldn't surprise me to see him up in AAA at the end of the year just to get a taste of how it feels to be sort of junk-balled by a veteran pitcher. I don't know how he's going to handle that, the breaking balls of veteran pitchers, but he's an example of a guy who has turned it around, at least in the second half. That's what you're looking for is something to get better. But when you look through those top names, Tiedemann with the injury, Brandon Barriere, a bit of a tough start. Zula Weta has been a tough start. Addison Barger lost time to injury. Not a lot of good news in the system, but the good news is that there's a little time left, and the hope is that more players go the way Martinez has, which has been incredibly impressive. Full credit to him. Yeah, huge year for Martinez. He already has 41 walks this year with only 57 strikeouts. 
He walked 40 times all of last year in about double the games and struck out 140 times in that season. Yeah, so you will take that. The power's still there for sure. Obviously, that's going to impact the Blue Jays going forward. How do you think this tough minor league campaign is going to impact the Blue Jays at the deadline when obviously they're looking to maybe try and use some guys to help bolster the major league roster right now? Yeah, it doesn't exactly help. Now, for the Blue Jays, it will matter what level they are shopping at. For example, is this going to be a year where they chase something like a Jose Berrios trade? Uh, I'm not sure. You know, that's something that required a couple of top five prospects and some, some real investments, a, a real risk from the organization. This could be something similar to what we saw last year with some more administrative moves, complementary depth moves, where maybe you're trading your number 27 prospect, your number 38 prospect. That's a little easier to stomach. Maybe any of them come back and are an all-star down the road. You never know. But I don't think you're going to see this as a Gabby Moreno type of package this offseason. Or sorry, this trade deadline like the Blue Jays have done recently. They've been pretty aggressive with these top names and pretty aggressive even dealing their own number one picks. You go back to the Matt Chapman trade and Gunnar Hogland as well. They have not been shy in that area whatsoever. But I think that if you have some lower-level guys who are interesting, which is what the Blue Jays have, you're in a good place. And I think this is where their change in approach to pitching development is really important because the Blue Jays finally are developing some pitchers with velocity, with swing and miss, and with some lottery ticket upside from the lower minors. They used to be more of a style of sinker balling, contact, eight or nine Ks per nine prospects, which are good, but they don't really excite other organizations. They don't make somebody in the Oakland A's front office say, we need this guy. This is the secret guy in this trade. So I think that if you have a few of those lottery tickets available, who may not be ranked number two in the system, but have some upside, and you have some money available, which is always important, I think there's still plenty of room to do what they want to do. Keegan, speaking a little bit more of that second half and what it means for the Blue Jays here, obviously a lot riding on uh, this post-All-Star break uh, moment for the Blue Jays. How do you um, see, and we know that we can't really project as of right now, but how do you see the uh, the rotation lining up and, and where do you think Manoa will fit coming out of the break? Yeah, Manoa is an interesting one because you want to be conscious of who he is facing the second time through, the third time through. I think you still have to be fairly careful with Manoa. Not saying that I doubt his ability in the next start at all, but look at reality. Look how the first half of the season went. So coming out of the break, you have the D-backs, then the Padres. I I think it's important. How are you lining up Manoa against the Padres? Do you want to keep him away from them or not? Then you travel to Seattle and you have the Dodgers after that. What do you want to do there? Do you want Manoa facing the Dodgers, or would you rather keep him away? I think Manoa, like you highlight him, Julia, is the one moving piece. I think you figure out Manoa first, even before Kevin Gossman. You figure out Manoa, where he lines up best for his next four, five, six starts, and then you try to line up the rest. Because this pitching staff has thrown a million innings at this point. They are ranking very high up. Kevin Gossman's fourth in the AL, I think. Chris Bassett, Jose Barrios are right around that 8-10 to 10 range. Who needs a breather? I don't think Chris Bassett wants one. I don't want to be the guy to tell him he's getting one, but uh, this, this group needs a breather eventually. 
you could potentially, you know, line up Manoa maybe on a Tuesday to face San Diego and then the Sunday against Seattle. I mean, all those teams mm-hmm. are really talented, but maybe avoid the D-backs, avoid the Dodgers if possible. It is a tough stretch coming up for them, though. What do you think about keeping Manoa and Kikuchi maybe a little bit separate? Because just like the rotation, the bullpen has been pretty taxed as well. And in theory, at least, Manoa and Kikuchi would be the two days where you would likely lean on the bullpen the most. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and the, the idea of getting even Kikuchi separated from that bullpen day at the time, I think was something that was important because this bullpen has done some heavy lifting. And a lot of that has come on Eric Swanson, Tim Meza, Jordan Romano, Jimmy Garcia, your real key names who when things shorten up in September and definitely October, that's who you need. So you can borrow from tomorrow quite a bit. You can borrow from tomorrow through July, through August, but eventually this thing comes back around and bites you. You need to save a little bit in the tank for the stretch run. Now, you can't exactly roll out a middle reliever to save games to give Jordan Romano rest. That's not how it works, but you have to find spots where you can give them a breather. Oddly enough, that's on the offense, not on the bullpen. It's on the offense to give this team a couple of days where they're winning 8-1, to one, and you say, hey, Mitch White, go pitch three innings. That is the dream scenario for the Blue Jays, is getting a few days like that mixed in every couple of weeks to give them a quote-unquote off day for the bullpen. Because if they keep going at this rate, I think long term is extremely dangerous. Yeah, there has been uh, or there have there have been some uh, tough days for this Blue Jays offense for sure. You mentioned Jordan Romano a few times. I know that you weren't in Seattle. Uh, some early updates coming up about him having some lower back tightness and uh, still coming into the All Star game. Uh, we've discussed that a little bit, but um, do you have any? Uh, Further updates here, Keegan, and what did you think of the whole situation about, you know, Romano coming in to pitch, even though he felt something in the bullpen? Yeah, that, that was interesting, and I, I'm interested to hear from Jordan soon when we're back at the ballpark exactly how that felt coming in. You do hear that from pitchers sometimes where they're thinking, I'm a little bit stiff, but you just think it's stiffness. It's like any of us on any given day, sometimes you're a little sore, sometimes you feel good. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. So with Romano coming out of that game, he didn't look all that concerned. At the same time, I've never seen Jordan Romano look all that concerned. So I'm not going to read too much into the most relaxed Blue Jays' uh, facial expressions. We'll see how he feels uh, back in Toronto here on Friday, but that is big news and really took the wind out of uh, an incredible All-Star game if you were a Blue Jays fan watching that because – Romano has been just fantastic this year. He is in a spot to potentially take a run at that Blue Jays saves record of 45 from Dwayne Ward. He is really in that spot. And if you lose, not just Romano, but Romano or Swanson or Garcia or Meza, any of those guys on the back end, you're kind of shortened up to what you were last year. That addition of Swanson has been so important just to give you one more on that back end. But when you shorten that up, all of a sudden, well, Nate Pearson, what are you asking from him? Then are you asking Trevor Richards into bigger situations? There's a real domino effect. So uh, a couple more days of holding your breath on Romano, but uh, hopefully for him, nothing too serious because that was a, uh, a big moment for him. And uh, ideally, that, that stays a happy memory.
Yeah, for sure. Keegan, really appreciate you joining us today and taking the time. And hey, if my softball team needs some power off the bench, I will be calling you, not Ben Nicholson-Smith. That's a real franchise right there. <laughs> I appreciate it, y'all. Have a good day. Thank you. Thanks, Keegan. That is Keegan Matheson, Blue Jays reporter for MLB. Dot com And interesting, he was talking about kind of going back to last year. And last year, you would have maybe out of that pen had more faith in an option like a Jimmy Garcia right. to step into that role, too. Jimmy did pitch better going into the break. But still, you know, it, let's say Romano wasn't there and you're moving Swanson into the closing role. I don't know how many Blue Jay fans have a slow heart rate if Jimmy's pitching an eighth inning and the team's up one. Right on. I, I do think that, uh, excuse me, that... Uh, Jimmy has turned a corner of late and what we saw from him early in the season was so uncharacteristic that what we're seeing now is sort of Jimmy going back to who he is and, and what he's good at. At the same time, has he done enough here to, to warrant that trust? Do you trust the body of work overall or do you see the, uh, the, the, the immediate results and, uh, and sort of go off of that? It is difficult. And then when you don't, when you can't really rely on a guy like Adam Simber, who was uh, who ended up being an option, especially a contact guy, right, who could get that double play or, or whatever it may be, when you can't count on him, where are you going with this? Uh, and and who really? What, how does Nate Pearson fit in? Um, how much can the Blue Jays, you know, trust him? as basically a rookie here, right? He's, this is his first full season. This is his first full season in the pen in a, in a major league capacity. So there's a lot that's riding on those moments for you to sort of roll the dice. Now, he has been phenomenal. For sure. Also in moments when the, high, the, the leverage is a little higher and the heartbeat is a little uh, faster. But how sustainable is that? And, uh, and that really turns our attention to the trade deadline, I think. Absolutely. And we are going to get kind of that more national perspective coming up on the other side. When we return on Jay's Talk Plus, Bob Nightingale from USA Today will join us. We are taking you all the way to noon, filling in for Blake Murphy. She is Julia Kreutz. I'm Ben Schulman. We will be back in a moment on Sportsnet 360 and the Sportsnet Radio Network. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Just under 20 minutes to go on Jay's Talk Plus on this Wednesday after the All-Star Game. Filling in for Blake Murphy this week, I'm Ben Schulman. She is Julia Kreutz. Jeff Azapardi, Lance Kennedy, Jennifer Rolnick behind the scenes. And joining us now for our final segment of the show, I believe on his way back from Seattle right now, columnist for USA Today, Bob Nightingale is on the phone. Bob, thanks so much for coming on while you're uh, making the trip back home. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Julia. Thank you very much, Bob. Uh, we appreciate you joining. Just first of all, impressions from seattle uh what was the environment like and and what did you see at this all-star break well but the whole environment was just a huge sales pitch for shohei otani and we trying to get him to come to their team next year uh game was good he was dull for a long time and then really you know he heated up when diaz hit that home run and then of course a uh the dramatic ninth inning too so yeah fun festivities uh 
long time coming. I mean, last All-Star game here was 2001. It was kind of fun, too, to see all the uh, the Mariners fans cheering on that 0-1 team. They brought everybody back, except for uh, pretty much except for Ichiro. You mentioned Shohei Otani, and uh, we all saw the fan chant and and, and everything. How do you uh, see sort of this trade deadline? He's obviously going to be very coveted then. Is there a chance that the Angels deal him, and uh, is there a chance that he goes to the Mariners? I don't think they deal him. I really don't. The thing is, if they trade him, they know that realistically they have zero chance to keep uh, three sentiments of free agent. If you uh, hang on to them, increases your chances. Uh, they're still five games out in the wild card race. Uh, they got just going to hold water until Mike Trout gets back in, in late August and, and see what happens. You know, and he makes a team a lot of money too. I just can't see trading him, and uh, you know everybody uh, getting upset in Anaheim. And then, you know, a lot of people not coming to games. Yeah, it is well documented how much sponsorship money, frankly, that Otani brings in both in the United States and overseas for whichever team he ends up playing on. His team, though, and Julio's team did not come up with the win yesterday. The National League did. It's been well documented that the AL has really dominated the NL, but you wrote about how much this meant to some of the National League guys. What do you think the feeling was like for those players, even though there's obviously no true competitive meaning in the game? I think you just thought the historic nature, like, well, man, it's been this long, particularly older older players, you know, saying, I'd like to win one all-star game before I retire. So, you know, I think I think it meant more in the, you know, talking to those players, you know, just kind of a uh, relaxed atmosphere into those final two innings. And guys got really fired up, like, okay, we got a chance to do it. Uh, nothing else. We can say we're always on that team that broke the streak. Bob, we spoke a little bit about the trade deadline here in Shohei Otani, but I do want to ask you, are there any teams that you think will be major players here, um, selling as well as buying, but if you want to focus on, on the sellers for the trade deadline and uh, how do you see uh, this uh, particular moment this season playing out? And there's not as many sellers as buyers, that's for sure. So teams like the St. Louis Cardinals, Chicago White Sox, two teams that fell the race, have got some nice pieces. You know, for uh, Chicago White Sox, uh, Lucas Giolito, uh, Mike Clevenger, Lance Lynn, uh, you know, jump out as far as a few relievers like uh, uh, Joe Kelly. Uh, St. Louis Cardinals, you can grab a, uh, you know, a, a Jack Flaherty or Jordan uh, or Montgomery. Montgomery or a uh, Jordan Hicks as a closer. So that'll kind of spice up the market. Uh, the Cubs could, too, with a Marcus Stroman and a, uh, a Cody Bellinger. So, you know, we're not going to see a Scherzer, Trey Turner type of deal. But, you know, uh, and I think there'll be a lot of relievers moved. It seems like everybody's looking for both and help. You mentioned Scherzer. The Mets are a really interesting team. What do you think their move is over the next couple weeks headed up to the deadline? I think the whole course, I think they'll think that, you know what, let's see if we can turn this thing around. Uh, you know, and I don't think they get the huge demand for Scherzer. He has not pitched that well. He's making $43 million a year. Uh, you know, that's a lot of money. So I, I think I think they hold on to Scherzer and Verlander. And, 
you know, does it work out this year? No, you know, go for it again next year. A little bit like the Padres. It's embarrassing is for the Padres. I don't see them, you know, dumping guys like a Juan Soto. You know, they could always trade a Josh Hader, uh, a Blake Snell, or both on the uh, last year contract. I think that's possible, but I don't, I don't think a, uh, a Soto is. Bob, speaking specifically of the Toronto Blue Jays, who figure to be buyers at the deadline, uh, where do you think their biggest needs are right now, and what are the chances that the trade deadline actually provides some answers for a team that has perhaps underperformed in the first half of the season? I certainly think they'll be uh, among the most aggressive teams. Uh, you know, get some bullpen help. Be nice to get another starter. Be nice for Manoa to bounce back and you know and, and be the guy that he was a year ago too. So, but I fully expect them to uh, be aggressive. Uh, very good team. I mean, you're right. They underachieved. I think they have the most talent in the uh, in the AL East. Uh, you know, just get in. You know, just like we saw with Philadelphia a year ago, the Nationals in 2019. You know, if you get in, anything can happen. But, but I fully expect them to be. Uh, aggressive. Uh, if they don't make the playoffs, I think it'd be, you know, huge, huge uh, disappointment there. You had a report recently that kind of concerned the Blue Jays, maybe less in, in terms of the deadline, but your report about the 2025 All-Star game that it, Toronto is in the mix, Baltimore, you had mentioned Atlanta as well. So w- what are you hearing on that front? And, and what do you think ends up deciding a lot of these things, where it ends up going in 2025? I like Toronto's chances a lot. The only thing you worry about uh, if you're a Blue Jays fan is Atlanta. Atlanta had the team, you know, in 2021. They took it away with the uh, restrictive voting issues. You know, but the All-Star Games in Texas, you know, next year, they've had their problems. Uh, Atlanta's got a brand-new ballpark. Of course, you know, Blue Jays, uh, you know, being modeling theirs. Uh, I I, I could see it going either way. I I really could. You know, I think it should be in a – you know, you know, after uh, these last couple of years, you know, next year's in Texas, you know, probably make more sense to be a nationally ballpark. Uh, but we'll see. I think whoever doesn't get it between uh, Atlanta and uh, Toronto, I think that team will, will get it in 2027. Bob, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about uh, the pitch timer and uh... – Still some controversy going on, even though we're in the middle of July here. Players wanting to add a few seconds to the pitch clock for the postseason or even get rid of it entirely. I don't think that's going to happen. But um, what do you make of this situation and where does the league go from here as players sort of uh, start positioning themselves that way? Yeah, I think the pitchers, I mean, the uh, players would like to see it go to 20 seconds, whether there's a runner on base or not. And the feeling is, you know, talking to Tony Clark and other people, is that, you know, it's just a different animal in the postseason. You want that drama to build. You know, go back to the uh, WBC in March where there's no fish clock. You know, it's fun just to see that drama build up. You know, Mike Trout versus uh, Otani there in the, in the final at bat where, you know, you may, you may feel rushed in the postseason. I don't think it's going to happen. I think there's a, a concern that, you know, if they add the five seconds, then the players will say, you know what? Hey, let's let's have it in regular season 2020. I mean, 2024 too. If you do that, you know, you're adding another 20 minutes to the uh, to the game. So I don't think it'll happen. But I think the players will continue to push for it. 
Yeah, it is interesting because, you know, at least, you know, with extra base runner and stuff like that and some other sports, there have been differences in playoff and regular season baseball. The Blue Jays hoping to get there regardless of what happens with the clock. Bob, good luck on your travels back home. Thank you so much for joining us today and kind of giving us a look at uh, the entire national landscape there. Sure, my pleasure. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Julia. Thank you. That was Bob Nightingale of USA Today. And it is interesting, the, the Pandora's box aspect to it. If, yeah. if you give them an inch, mm-hmm. will they take a mile? And will they continue to ask for more and yeah. more and more seconds on the clock? When I think while there are some detractors, for the most part, it seems like the pitch clock right now has a pretty good rating by most fans in major league baseball at this point yeah it's kind of it, it is serving its purpose right ben it is bringing maybe a, a wider variety of fans to the game the games are significantly shorter which helps it, it really does when you're trying to grow the game and you're trying to to bring in maybe the more casual fan it all plays together it all ties together with uh, you know increased offense with uh, increased base running defensive plays kind of uh, having a resurgence and really playing a, a big factor in in games and in the excitement of the games the the pitch timer ends up being a big part of that and so it seems like it's not going away and it seems like for the postseason we may end up seeing uh, some different highlight moments some different tension building up because pitchers have to also deal with it uh, at that moment, as the adrenaline runs a little bit higher, I understand sort of both sides. I, I do think that, you know, a lot of the drama of the postseason maybe hinges on a, the game being a little bit longer and pitchers taking their time and trying to control the tempo of the game. But at the same time, the pitch timer adds this this new wrinkle that can perhaps create some new moments and some some new excitement, um, unpredicted narratives perhaps that will come with can pitchers and hitters alike adjust to that pitch timer when it matters more, right? That's, uh, that's kind of where I fall uh, in, in that whole um, discussion here, Ben. And I think we have seen for what it's worth, and, and I was – calling games in the minors last year in a league where they were debuting the pitch timer in the Midwest League as well. And as the season went on, you noticed it less and less and less. And I think it is true that, you know, well, maybe for the first couple weeks of the season, it was like, oh, my goodness, this guy got struck out on a pitch violation. I can't remember many instances over the last month, maybe even two months, where many consequential plays at all were decided by violations. Now, the timer may affect how quick a guy gets on the rubber and maybe he delivers a pitch less true because of that, or maybe a hitter isn't geared up and ready to go as well because of that. But the violations, and this is just eye test, not actual data, do feel like they're going way down. So maybe it isn't even that necessary to change things if guys continue to get used to it during the final 70-ish games of the season. You know something? I haven't necessarily asked any pitchers this but with your experience in the minors and everything sometimes it looks like say a pitcher builds up an 0-2 count it has looked like to me that they're okay taking a pitch timer ball if they're not completely ready and I don't know if you have had any discussions in that regard but it seems like 
they're like, you know what? I'd rather go to one and two than throw a bad pitch here. Uh, I don't know. I've noticed that a couple of times where it seems like a guy won't even try to, to, to throw the pitch and just regroup for the next one. I do think a lot of the sentiment last year was if it got close and you were already ahead in the count, better to do that than throw a pitch right down the middle. Kind of better, you know, sometimes to walk a guy than throw a meatball and give up a home run. And I also think in the minors they learned last year and now in the majors they're learning, hey, if you have some disengagements, you can just use one. Just just burn one right now. It doesn't matter if David Ortiz is standing on first base, which obviously isn't realistic in the pitch clock era, but you can use one there. But we will continue to discuss that and more coming up with our second half preview tomorrow. Really appreciate you tuning in today to Jay's Talk Plus. She's Julia Kreutz behind the scenes. Jeff Azupati, Lance Kennedy, Jennifer Rolnick. I'm Ben Shulman, and we appreciate you tuning in on Sportsnet 360 and the Sportsnet Radio Network.